I want to speak this evening about themes connected to my books, but I'm not going to recapitulate, simply recapitulate what I've laid out in the books. If you want my detailed arguments, uh, then you can, you can read them uh, for yourselves. But I do want to look at something that I think is of great significance to understanding modern identity, which uh, I neglect somewhat in the book. So I want to sort of supplement my argument. You're no doubt aware that over the last uh, 12 to 18 months, the, you know, one of the burning questions in uh, political discourse has uh, emerged as, what is a woman? Uh, it, uh, first, I first became aware that this was a difficult issue when the uh, shadow minister for women and minorities in uh, the United Kingdom uh, was unable to answer the question of what is a woman. It struck me as rather odd that the shadow minister for women's issues uh, could not actually define the constituency that she was meant to be representing. Uh, and I wrote a short article on this, and a friend emailed me and said, you don't want to waste your time uh, addressing that question. Uh, it's of no real interest to anybody. And then, of course, there were the Supreme Court confirmation hearings when uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson was asked pretty much the same question and was unwilling or unable to provide a, a clear and concise answer uh, to the matter. So one of the pressing questions in contemporary society is, what is a woman? I want to suggest to you that, although that may be one of the, the politically charged questions, uh, it is not the most interesting or significant question. I think that more interest and more significant should be ascribed to a question that is rarely asked, but is actually very, very important. And that question is this. What does it mean to be a human? I think the question, what is a woman, actually rests upon the deeper question of what it means to be human. And it's that question that is really the issue upon which we have no consensus today. And it is that question that underlies so much of the traumatic politics and social conflicts that we see emerging in Western society at this point. It is, of course, not a straightforward question to answer because human beings have an interesting, an interesting aspect to them that is not really possessed by any other creature or animal. And I would put it in this way. Human beings are able to separate what we are from who we are. And that is not really possible with any other creature on the face of the planet. I've chatted to a number of you today, and uh, we got into conversations, and I would ask a version of the question, you know, who are you? Uh, and nobody responded uh, thus far by simply giving me their blood group or their genome or their genetic code. They told me about things they'd done, decisions they'd made. They may not have cast them in quite that way, but typically those who answered me, those I had a conversation with, talked about who they are, not what they are. And that's very different when you think of other creatures. If you take a beaver, for example, a beaver builds a dam. Uh, if you take a bee, for example, bees build honeycombs. Uh, if you, uh, well, my wife and I for many years had a Jack Russell Terrier. Uh, if you're a Jack Russell Terrier, Jack Russell Terriers do crazy stuff. Uh, they do it instinctively. 
They're hardwired to do it. Beavers do not choose to build a dam in the way that a human being might choose to build a dam. When we choose to build a dam, we assess whereabouts we want to build it. We assess the plans for doing so. And typically, the dam is built with some further purpose in mind. The generation of electricity or the drying out of a particular area. We freely choose to do stuff. And it's that free choice of doing stuff that makes us who we are. And technology enables that. And what I want to argue today is that technology has brought us to a point where the question of what we are has been completely overwhelmed by the question of who we are. And as there are many who's, as there are human beings on the face of the planet, that sets us up for identity chaos. I want to do this uh, by reflecting, as I say, on the impact of technology. And I want to do that through a a thought experiment. But first of all, just a, a quick reflection on technology as part of the background to what I want to speak about tonight. It's the German philosopher. Uh, Martin Heidegger, don't often quote him, don't often actually understand anything he says. But in his essay, The Question Concerning Technology, he has a number of interesting observations, and he says this at one point, the threat to man does not come in the first instance from the potentially lethal machines and apparatus of technology. The actual threat has already affected man in his essence. What's Heidegger mean there? He says the threat from technology is not the threat of what we would now call weapons of mass destruction. What's the most dangerous thing about technology in the lives that we live? It's not the fact, Heidegger's saying, that we have developed weapons that can wipe us all off the face of the earth. What he's saying is the danger of technology is that it might fundamentally dehumanize us. He also draws an interesting analogy or or draws an interesting example in this essay when he makes the point that there's a big difference between building a bridge over a river and damming a river up to generate hydroelectric power. And the point he makes is this. Building a bridge over a river respects the authority of nature. It respects the power of nature. It sees nature as a given around which human beings must work. When you dam a river to generate hydroelectric power, however, what you're doing is you're treating nature as raw material that you can make do whatever you want it to do. When you think about that, when you think about those two different ways of using technology, you're actually thinking about two different ways of imagining what it is to be a human being in this world. In the one, you're part of a world that has a shape and an authority that you must respect and work around. In the other one, you imagine yourself as an all-powerful will that is able to use the world and use nature as raw material to achieve your purposes. Heidegger is pointing, if you like, to a a further point, and that's this. Technology does not allow us to do the same things faster. That's typically how we think of it. 
or more efficiently or cleaner. Technology actually shapes, changes who we are because it changes how we relate to each other in very fundamental ways. My accent, despite the announcement this morning, I am not from Texas. A couple of people said, which part of your Texas are you from with that accent? I'm not from Texas. I'm from the West Country of England. I emigrated in 2001. I've been here 21 years. Emigration today is not what it was in the early 17th century. In the early 17th century, I would have said goodbye to my parents on the quayside at Bristol, knowing that I would never hear their voices again or see their faces again. Today... That's not the case. When I emigrated, I knew that I would see my parents within a few months because they would fly out to join us for a holiday. Two weeks from today, two weeks this Sunday, my wife and I will be back in our church near Pittsburgh, having been to Britain for five days. Flying out to Britain a week tomorrow for five days to, to give some lectures out there. I can fly out and fly back within a week. My experience of space and time, my experience of travel, is not the 17th century experience only accelerated. It is a completely different experience. A completely different experience. What I want to do today is, through a thought experiment, bring home to you, yes, how technology has fundamentally changed how we think about ourselves and how it has therefore fundamentally changed how we think about what it means to be a human self. The thought experiment is this. I want to go on a, a, a time travel exercise. I want to visit three different dates. The first date I want to visit is 1248. Why I'm being so precise will become clear, I hope, in a few moments' time. But first of all, I just want to talk generally about life in 1248, in the middle of the 13th century. First thing to note about 1248 is, if you go back to Europe in 1248, you're living in an agrarian world. It's a world where the economy is built upon agriculture. And in an agrarian world, one of the things that is most obvious is nature has an authority. I grew up in Farming territory in England, in the west of England. I now live in farming territory in the west of Pennsylvania. Some ways that there are many things about the west of Pennsylvania that remind me of my home. And one of the course, the most obvious things is the power of the seasons. The farmer's life is determined by the shape of the seasons. He has to sow his seed in the spring and he must harvest it in the fall. Should he choose to sow his seed in the autumn, the fall, and then try to harvest it in the winter, he will starve to death, or he will go bankrupt. The seasons have a huge authority. Time is marked out for him by the seasons. So bear that in mind. Secondly, in the year 1248, space has huge authority. Space has tremendous authority. Best guess, middle of the 13th century. If you were born at that particular point in time, you would not travel more than 40 miles from where you were born. More than likely, you would be baptized, christened, uh, where well, you'd be christened, baptized, married, and buried in the same churchyard. 
place would have a profound power over who you are. Thirdly, community would be very strong. Community would be very strong partly because you couldn't move very far. You know, it didn't really matter if you got on with your family or not. It was a bit tough. You know, you were going to be living in close proximity to them for the whole of your life. And the same with your neighbours. You do not really have the option of selling up and moving to the other side of the state. Community would be very strong. The hierarchy would be very strong as well. You would exist in a particular place in the hierarchy. They didn't have what we call social mobility at that particular point in time. And that had career implications as well. You wouldn't get to choose what you were doing for your career. It was chosen for you. It was something you inherited from your parents. If your dad was an agrarian farmer, peasant, guess what you're going to be? You're going to be a farming peasant. No way that you can apply for a job as a knight in shining armor. It doesn't work that way. You're never going to be king. You're stuck in a position in the social hierarchy. And that points to another thing, that there's a political stability there. The world doesn't actually change very much. We might say that if you could go back to 1248, hang around for a couple of months in my home village of Gloucester, home county of Gloucestershire, and then move forward in time to 1348, the faces would have changed, a whole generation or two would have come and gone. But the way of life would be very much the same. Not much would change at all. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us that it's a world in which identity is very, very stable. It's very, very stable. Because who you are is pretty much given to you. What you do is pretty much given to you. Where you live is pretty much given to you. Everything external has huge authority in shaping your sense of self and your sense of identity. If somebody had asked you, who are you? You wouldn't have given the sort of contemporary Hollywood star answer. Well, I'm a really spiritual person. No, you'd have said, I come from that village. I am the son or the daughter of so-and-so. This is what I do. I'm a blacksmith. I'm a peasant farmer. You'd have had an inner space. Certainly, you'd have had feelings. But they wouldn't really have risen to the level of being who you are. Who you are would be fixed and given. The world had a solidity to it. And, of course, that's in large part connected to technology. You didn't have the technology that allowed you to travel vast distances. You didn't have the technology that fuels change. Pretty much who you are is who you were born. We might also notice that it was a world in which you as an individual are not the most important thing. Why did I choose the year 1248? I chose the year 1248 because that is the year upon which work upon Cologne Cathedral was started. Cologne Cathedral, if ever you're passing through the German city of Cologne, if you have to change trains there, Cologne Cathedral is just a a short walk from the railway station. And it is one of the great achievements 
of Gothic, medieval Gothic architecture, maybe one of the great architectural achievements, period. Well worth going over to see. They begin work on it in 1248. They finish it, I think, around about 1888. Uh, it's a long project. Now, it didn't have to be that long. I was joking yesterday, I was over in New Jersey, I said, you know, even the New Jersey Turnpike Commission can you know, build things quicker than Cologne Cathedral. And that's saying something. Uh, and one doesn't want to mention Pendot. Um, wow. I mean, the Germans build whole autobahn systems in the time it takes Pendot to fill in the annual potholes. Uh, but anyway, and I say that as an Englishman, not a German. Anyway, it takes 650 years, roughly, of which 200 years there's no work done on the cathedral because the Reformation precipitates wars of religion and that leads to a suspension of building. But even so, we know that on day one of construction... Nobody on the construction site believed that they would live to worship in Cologne Cathedral. They knew that. They knew that it takes a long, long time. It takes decades, if not centuries, to pull off something like Cologne Cathedral. And yet still they did it. Still they did it. Because their vision was not about themselves. Their vision was something greater. I think it was about the greatness of the God they worshipped and about the fact that their role on this earth was not their own self-fulfillment. It was providing something great for future generations. Hold that in mind as we move to the second date about which I want to speak. Conscious, it's Reformation Sunday. So I thought it would be useful to throw in a Reformation reference. That's actually... Uh, what I'm qualified, I'm not qualified to teach any of this stuff I'm teaching at the moment. I'm only really qualified to teach about 30 years of English history. Uh, 15 in the 16th century and 15 in the 17th century. I, I am actually, for Reformation scholars, relatively wide-ranging in that I touch on two centuries in my academic work. But anyway, I'm not going to go to the standard Reformation reference, which of course is Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the castle door in Wittenberg. I'm going to go to the start of another Reformation. And that Reformation is the Zurich Reformation. And the Zurich Reformation begins in 1522, in the run-up to Easter. The Zurich Reformation begins during the Lenten Fast. What is the Lenten Fast? The Lenten Fast is this period of 40 days before Easter where there are very strict dietary restrictions on what can and cannot be eaten and when they can and cannot be eaten. 1522, the Zurich printer, Christoph Froschauer. By the way, Reformation printers, very edgy characters by and large. You know, we tend to think of printing as not a particularly edgy profession. Uh, but in the Reformation, it was an edgy profession. You could burn at the stake for publishing the wrong book. Uh, the printers of the 16th century are they're the Steve Jobs of the 21st century. They're going around breaking stuff, essentially. They tend to be radicals. And Froschauer is a radical. Froschauer calls his employees together in his printing workshop. And he calls the, uh, the preacher at large of Zurich, Huldrych Zwingli, later to be Luther's great opponent, to meet 
in his workshop. And in the workshop, they cook up, they fry a saucepan of sausages and they eat them. So radical is this move that Zwingli, who is there, makes it clear in public declarations about this event that, yes, I was there, but I didn't eat any of the sausages. You know, I was there to sort of witness it, but I didn't get involved myself. That's the, the moment at which the Zurich Reformation begins. Well, what's so radical about that? I would say everything. What you see in the Zurich Reformation is the collision of the old world and the new, and the new world wins. Why do I say that? First of all, it takes place around the new technology. The printing press will change everything. It will fuel rising literacy rates. It will lead to a transformation of structures of power within Europe. It will lead to 150 years of bloody conflict as Europe tries to sort of realign itself around this new way of working. It is the radical technology of its day. And think about what Froschauer is doing. He's on the cutting edge of the technological revolution. Froschauer is not like a farmer. great thing about Lent for farmers is, hey, there's not a lot of work to do in the spring. Pretty much all done. You've sowed your seed. You don't need to be eating your meat and two veg in order to keep your strength up. You don't have a regular work time like printers do. The old church calendar of the Middle Ages, built as it is around the rhythm of the seasons because it's connected to an agrarian and agricultural society, is of no use. Is of no use to those involved in printing, what do they care about the seasons? You can print books, winter, spring, summer, and fall. You need a regular pattern of work. The religious rhythm of life is shattered by technology and by the new rising industry. Think about what that does of sense of self. Think about how important time is for understanding who you are. Think about how time is marked on calendars, typically. You're Americans. I might ask you, you know, when did that happen? And you probably intuitively respond and say, well, it happened around about July the 4th, or just before Thanksgiving, or shortly after Martin Luther King Day, around about Labor Day. Think about how you mark time. It's not accidental that all of those markers connect to important aspects of the American narrative connect to important aspects of what it means to be an American. Next uh, Saturday, of course, in my home country of uh, England, November the 5th, Guy Fawkes Day. You you have July the 4th when you set off a lot of fireworks. We have November the 5th when we set off off a lot of fireworks and we burn a traitor in effigy. I think we've got it. I think we're one up to you there. We burn a traitor in effigy every November the 5th, except for one village in the east of England, the village of Lewis, uh, where they burn the Pope in effigy, I believe, every November the 5th. Uh, That one may well fall to the politically correct uh, crowd at uh, some point, I guess. What I'm saying is this. Technology fundamentally changes. Changes everything. It's going to change how time is marked. 
It's going to change the rhythm of life. It's going to change how people relate to their work. It's going to change how people think about themselves. And that brings me to my third date. What is my third date? My third date is October the 30th, 2022. It's today. Let's think about today in comparison to 1248. What can we say about today? Well, we might draw a couple of broad characterizations about the world in which we live in. I would say we live in a world that is characterized by the collapse of external authorities, or at least traditional external authorities, and an emphasis on the individual. That's the world we live in today. That's why it's so incomprehensible to us that in 1248, a group of people would get together to build Cologne Cathedral. Why would they do that? There is no transcendent vision. There is nothing that we would commit to because it will bear fruit in 400 years' time. Because we think of the world as about us, as individuals. And we think about it in terms of, what can I find that is satisfying for me as an individual? In one of my books, I use the example of uh, my grandfather. I contrast him with myself, and I say, you know, my grandfather, I think he left school at 13 or 14. He worked in a factory for over 50 years until he retired. Uh, And if I ask my grandfather, granddad, did you get job satisfaction? Uh, My grandfather would, first of all, not have understood the question. It would not be a concept he'd ever wrestled with. If I rephrased the question into a category that he could understand and said, did you consider your work worthwhile? He would say, of course. Is it enabled me to put clothes on my children's backs and food on the table? It enabled me to fulfill my obligations towards others. My grandfather may not have been looking 600 years down the line, but he didn't see himself and his work as the be-all and end-all. He saw himself in terms of having obligations towards others. And his happiness, such as it featured in the equation relative choice of job, was met by meeting those obligations towards others, not by meeting an obligation to himself. You ask me the same question, I'm going to say, yeah, I get job satisfaction because I get a real buzz out of teaching. Very glad that my job pays the mortgage, don't get me wrong. But that's not the first thing that comes to my mind. When you ask me or somebody of my generation... Do you get job satisfaction? I guarantee you that the first thing that we think of is not, does it enable me to meet my obligations to others? The first thing we think of is, is it boring or interesting? Do I go home at the end of the day feeling psychologically satisfied by what I have done? There is an emphasis upon the individual, unknown even in the 16th century. Secondly, there is a rejection of the world as having a moral shape and a reduction of it to mere stuff. Raw, intrinsically material, intrinsically meaningless material out of which we can make things. Where does that come from? From technology. We've shifted from building bridges over rivers to damming them up to generate hydroelectric power, Heidegger would say. We've shifted from seeing the world as having a kind of shape of which we ourselves are a part and must respect in some way 
to seeing the world as, we might put it this way, either raw material or perhaps even more so, a problem to be overcome. I might return to this later, but since when did the sex nature of our bodies become a problem? Since technology allowed us to imagine that it is a problem and it can be overcome. Prior to that, gender dysphoria, as we now call it, was a problem of the mind. Now it's a problem of the body because technology allows us to imagine it as a problem of the body. And what are the technological factors that have fueled this? Again, one of the burdens of my work is this, that we cannot point to a single cause for the problems we face. It's not the progressives. It's not the sexual revolution. All of these things play a role. But actually, it's the broader context in which we all live and move and have our being that shapes how we think about the self. Think about how the automobile has transformed the nature of religion. Now, religious freedom is a good thing. I do not wish to live in a country where there is no religious freedom. But religious freedom, and Tocqueville, the great French commentator on American democracy, notes this in the 19th century. Religious freedom, which he didn't have in Europe, and he was fascinated by it in America, shifts power in religion towards the congregant. When you can choose your religion or choose to have no religion at all, then religious institutions become sort of competitive. They're selling you a religion and you as a congregant are kind of a consumer because you're free to choose that church or to go to the church down the road or to go to no church at all. Religious freedom is a good thing, but it's not an unqualified good thing. Because it turns religion into a choice. A choice which is supercharged by the arrival of the automobile. In the 17th century, in theory, you've got religious choice. In practice, you don't really because, hey, you don't move much beyond, even as a peasant in the 17th century, you don't move much beyond the 40, 50 mile radius from where you were born. And there's a limited number of religious choices in that area. Once you have free and easy transport, it's all up for grabs. When I leave here this evening, I'm going to drive 320 miles back to Slippery Rock. That would have been a long and dangerous journey in the 17th century. It's going to be pretty straightforward. Pen dots permitting uh, when I leave. Automobiles change the nature of the church. Church discipline today is virtually non-existent. 17th century in Scotland, if you cross the church authorities, uh, first offence, you had to sit under the pulpit on a narrow uh, uh, shelf that wasn't quite uh, large enough to sit on comfortably, and everybody knew you'd been up to something. It was publicly humiliating. Second offence, you had to wait just outside the church door. So symbolically, you heard the word preached, but you're excluded from the community. Third offence, they manacled you to the wall outside the church. I was a pastor for six years in Pennsylvania. Present company accepted there were some congruence. I would love to have manacled to the outside wall of my church. But I couldn't get away with it because if I said, when you turn up in church on Sunday, I'm going to manacle you to the outside wall, they'd have jumped in their car and driven somewhere else that Sunday. Church discipline is dead. Church discipline is really dead. 
Charles Taylor has a, a rather striking way of describing it. He says, you know, you can believe the same thing today as Christians believed in the year 1500, but you cannot believe in the same way. I use this to goad some of my Catholic friends. The great thing about Catholics today is you're Protestants too. What do you mean? You choose. Well, I was born a Catholic. Yeah, but you could choose not to be a Catholic now. Your position is still more contested and conflicted than it was in the 15th century. Religious freedom fuels individual sovereignty. Think about music. It's interesting. Religion was one way that communities were bound together. Now it's a consumer thing. It doesn't necessarily bind communities together because churches are very weak in terms of their structure and their ability to hold themselves together. Think about music. Why do cultures have music? Typically, cultures have had music to bind communities together because people get together for music traditionally. 200 years ago, if you enjoy music, you enjoy it corporately and communally. You have to either be part of a group producing it or you have to be in the presence of a group producing it. Music is something you produce in the 18th century, in the 19th century. What is music to us today? Music, the purpose of music today is almost 180 compared to what it was traditionally. Music now is something we experience primarily individually on our own time and our own choice. Even when I was growing up, there was such a thing as a concept album. You know, Pink Floyd, you had to listen to the whole album to get the full impact. With Spotify, you choose. I enjoy music every day. A few times a year, my wife and I will go to a concert. It's great teaching at a college with a vibrant music culture because you can go and listen to live music, and it's wonderful. But it is not the normative way in which I experience music. I experience it in an individual way over which I myself am sovereign. That's why when Spotify crashes, it's so frustrating. (laughs) It's so frustrating. But that frustration only comes from the fact that Spotify has created that need in the first place. Music has gone from a communal production to an object of individual consumption. Think about sex, sexual mores. If there is anything that lies at the heart of what it means to be a human being, it is our sexual codes. I think Freud is absolutely right when he makes the point that a society's sexual codes are fundamentally constitutive of what that society is. It is the things we forbid sexually that really tell you what's going on in a society. Technology, though, has created a situation where Sex and sexuality are not things that are really regulated anymore. Think about what antibiotics, contraception, abortion. Think about the way they've shaped the significance, reshaped the significance of sex. Uh, Katrina and I were walking through a a pro-abortion protest in Carlisle. We were staying in a hotel in Carlisle recently on our way over to Philly. Uh, and we were walking through, walking back from the restaurant, and we walked through this pro-abortion protest. There were only about 12 or 15 people. It was not a very big or impressive protest. Uh, and Katrina gets angry at these things. Uh, I'm a sort of, 
I'm always thinking, what, what is the here that I can use as an illustration in a lecture? And it did not disappoint, because one of the people on the protest line was waving around a banner that said, consent to sex is not consent to pregnancy, which is true today, but would not have been true 100 years ago. 100 years ago, consent to sex was at least consent to the possibility of pregnancy. Sex as recreation is a purely technologically enabled thing. And as the purpose of sex changes in our society, so our sense of selfhood changes in society. When you can treat sex as a recreation, you automatically water down your relationship with the person you marry. What is it that traditionally makes married relationships unique? It is that in that relationship, and that alone, there is sexual activity. That's what makes it unique. Once it's been given away to everyone, what makes marriage unique anymore? It just becomes a, a long-lasting friendship, I guess. It's not traditionally what it has been. We can think about technology and pornography. Thinking about pornography, most of us think, and rightly so, that the problems with pornography are lust. Objectification of women, maybe objectification of the men involved as well. Connections to sex trafficking. These are all very important and very legitimate concerns. But pornography also preaches a message of sex divorced from relationship. Pornography, to use the language of Roger Scruton on this, what does pornography teach us? It teaches us that other people are means to ends, not ends in themselves. What is the purpose of the people on the screen? It's to bring me, as I watch it, pleasure and satisfaction. They are merely instrumental to me. We might say they're not really human at that point. They're merely instrumental. Scruton, I love his analogy, says, you know, what does pornography do? Pornography turns sex as a matter that is concerned with people as faces to people as bodies. And you can get to the significance of that. I, I have a trick I do in class at Grove when I teach this stuff because there's always, a, there's always an engaged couple in class. Uh, and I'm English, so for something to be funny, somebody has to be humiliated somewhere down the line. Uh, and uh, the great thing about students is they tend to be kind of, you know, they tend to think of you as a good faith person. Uh, and that's generally a mistake. Uh, and I'll ask, you know, anybody in class engaged? And, of course, they're eager to tell everyone they're engaged, so the hand will go up. And I say, I'll say to the guy, uh, well, first of all, I'll say, uh, so what first attracted you to your fiancé? And the thing is, they then think, well, that must be a trick question. And they'll pause. And it's fantastic, because they only have to pause for like half a second, and the girl's colour starts to change. <laughs> I'm engaged to this guy, and he can't remember what first attracted him to me. It's fantastic. I love it. And I always say, yeah, just tell me she's beautiful, man. That kind of works, you know, by and large. But then I follow up, and I say, well, when you're, when you're getting married, on the day of the wedding... Groom's waiting up front, the music is playing, the bridesmaids have all uh, come on in. Uh, in Britain, by the way, we only have the best man. We don't have all these groomsmen. You have like casts of thousands at American weddings. It's like, <laughs> staggering. It's like an entire football team or something there to back the, the guy up. 
Uh, and the music changes, and you know this is the moment that she has entered. And it's a Pavlovian response to turn around because you want to see the most beautiful woman in the world on the greatest day of your life. You, you, can't, you need to see her at that point. You turn around, and to your horror, while you're engaged to Julie, it's actually Angela who's turned up in the bridal gown. And I say to the, the guy, so do you go through with the wedding? And if he's intelligent, his answer will be immediately, no way. I said, well, why not? He said, well, I want to marry Julia, not Angela. I say, well, why? Angela's a lovely person. She's beautiful. You can make love to Angela. You can have children with Angela. Uh, according to the character tests you've taken, you can have a happy life with Angela. Why don't you marry Angela? And his answer will be, because I want to marry Julia. I say, exactly. Because you want to marry her as an individual. You don't just want to marry a body. You want to marry a face. You want to marry a person. You want to marry her as an end in herself. And that's another, to use a, a sort of sadder example, that's why every year you'll see these examples on the TV where a couple, one of them has some terrible disease, maybe they're dying of cancer, and they'll get married in a hospital bed. And by the time the news report comes up on the local news that evening, they'll say, and the bride or the groom died 90 minutes later. Nobody watching those news reports ever thinks, what a stupid thing to do. They're only married for 90 minutes. What can you do in 90 minutes? Everybody's deeply moved. And they're deeply moved because they know that a marriage is not about treating the other person as an instrument. It's about treating the other person as an end in themselves. So as strange as it is to marry somebody for 90 minutes, it makes perfect sense to us as we watch. Pornography destroys that. That vision of male-female relationships, that vision of seeing the partner not as a means to an end but as an end in themselves is destroyed by pornography. And that, I think, is just as lethal an aspect of pornography as any of the other lethal aspects that there are. We can also see how technology disembodies us. Marx and Engels spot this in the Communist Manifesto when they say, you know, the more the world is automated, the more the world is industrialized, so the less significant the difference between the sexes will be. They're thinking industrial labor, of course. In the Middle Ages, it takes a big, strong person to wield a sledgehammer and be a blacksmith. Once blacksmithing is automated and all you need to do is press a button, it doesn't matter if you're big or strong. You just need a useful index finger and the ability to push a button. What we've seen, of course, is that that aspect of technology has come to grip the wider cultural imagination because technology has reduced the difference between men and women in that area. Why shouldn't it reduce the difference between men and women in all areas? If we start to think about what it means to be human or to be a man or to be a woman in purely functional terms then as technology enables us to share more and more functions, so the distinction between the two disappears. We also see technology as destabilizing our sense of self and identity. Have you ever wondered why is it today that young people struggle more with anxiety 
than they did 30 years ago. When I was at college in the 80s, we probably had a counseling center at the university. Nobody ever bothered mentioning it. Never crossed my mind that I might ever need to go to it. And yet, it's a central part now of induction at colleges to tell people about the counseling center. At Grove, we have to place it on our syllabuses to make sure students know it's there and the number they can call. 40% of students at Grove, which I think is typical of the nation as a whole, will seek help for themselves or for a friend at the counseling center during their four years at college. And yet, even with Vladimir Putin rattling his saber, we live in a world that is really far more secure than the world I grew up in in the 1980s, where we did nuclear bomb drills at high school, and certainly more secure than the world my father grew up in in the 19, late 1930s and 40s, where his earliest memories are wrapped up with running down to the bomb shelter at the bottom of the garden because the Luftwaffe were flying over Birmingham on a nightly basis trying to kill him and his family. Why do we have so much anxiety today? A sense of self has been destabilized by technology. When I was at school, I had seven or eight pals. They were the only guys whose opinion I valued. They were the only guys whose opinion I needed. And I saw them every day. In a world where friendships are mediated technologically, our young people have hundreds of friends on Facebook and Twitter. And those likes and dislikes and snarky comments have a devastating impact. I don't care about Twitter. Every now and then, though, my wife will read me something that's been said about me on Twitter. I don't care about Twitter, and it hurts me for like 30 seconds or so. If you live online, as young people do, those comments are devastating. They're truly devastating. Technology has transformed human interrelationships, human self in that way. Life has been changed in dramatic and disturbing ways. How might we address this? Well, first of all, I think we need to realize what technology has done. Technology has allowed the who question to overwhelm the what question without providing any stable notion of how to answer the who question. Yes, people in the 13th century... They were whose. They made free decisions. They freely chose to build Cologne Cathedral. But the technology they had was not technology designed to enable them to transcend themselves. It was technology designed to enable them to be themselves, one might say. It respected their limits and their limitations. That is no longer the case for us today. One of the things that I neglect to mention in the book, but I've since become very, very convinced of, is that transgenderism is not to be understood simply in terms of developments in queer theory, nor is it to be understood simply in terms of the politics of opposition to white heteronormativity, as they call it. It is also to be understood as a function of transhumanism. What is transhumanism? It is the idea that we can transcend ourselves through the use of technology. There are various ways one might think about doing that, but we see it already, I think, in the field of medical ethics. What was medicine traditionally about? I would say medicine was traditionally restorative or reparative. 
You break your arm, you get it set. That's repairing, restoring. You get badly burned, you can have a skin graft. You get ill, you can have an operation. Or you can take a pill to restore you to what you once were. That is not how medical ethics operates anymore. Medical ethics increasingly tilts towards the transcending of the self. We see it in comparatively trivial and harmless ways. Don't like the shape of the nose you were born with? we got an answer to that. You can have your nose reshaped. On a more sinister level, we see it in the trans movement. Your eight-year-old, nine-year-old child is confused? Don't worry. We can permanently mutilate their body so they can never have children 20, 30 years from now. We won't allow your seven or eight child to have a tattoo because that would be crazy and irresponsible. But we will campaign for your seven or eight-year-old confused child to be told that he was born, she was born in the wrong body. Medical ethics has been transformed by this. How might we respond? Well, here I move into distinctively Christian mode. Everything I've said so far, I think, is... You know, I put my own spin on it. I obviously have my own opinions on it. But by and large, what I've talked about is an analysis of where we are. What answers would I offer? Well, a couple of them. First of all, be aware of the power of technology. Reshaping how you think about yourself. Not all cyborgs have technology integrated into their bodies. I was in an airport recently and I suddenly realised that I'd chosen the place to sit in the departure lounge because my cell phone needed recharging. Raises the question, who runs my life? Is it me or is it my cell phone? There's a choice. That was a cyborg choice. Think about how you use technology in your lives. Do you use technology or really does your technology use you? Secondly, think about how you conduct your interpersonal human relationships. Is it primarily online or is it in person? If it's primarily online, I think that's a problem. You're part of the disembodied, destabilized selfhood that is proving so problematic in the modern age. I don't do Twitter, I don't do Facebook, I don't do Instagram, I don't have enough time. But I also don't have the interest in being friends with people that I never actually have any contact with. Friends are the people I go out for a drink with. Friends are the people I meet with around my dinner table to enjoy good conversation. Friends are the students I connect with, with whom uh, I continue a relationship after they've graduated. Real people, real circumstances. Think about how you interact with other people. Thirdly, and again, this is speaking very much to the church here, Notion of selfhood. The modern notion of selfhood that emerges is going to set the church at fundamental odds with the world around on a whole variety of different levels. The church is set, at least I think the faithful church is set, to become very marginal within our culture. It would be a tragedy, I think, if the marginality of the church was greeted merely as a tragedy. I do think mourning is appropriate. I was saying to a group earlier on, I'm not, it's very trendy these days to sort of say, isn't it great that civic religion is dying? 
among Christian circles, you go, isn't it great that civic religion is dying because we're just going to be left with true Christianity? The churches are left will be, well, I, I agree, we don't want to confuse civic religion with Christianity. But one thing I liked about a world where civic religion was strong was um, I could walk down M Street in Georgetown during Pride Month, during June, and not be confronted with gay pornography from billboards and shop fronts. Civic religion made the streets safe for women and children, decent human beings, we might say. So the loss of civic religion is something, in some ways, to lament. We are heading into a world that is crueler and harsher and nastier and less safe in many, many ways for our children. That should be something we lament. But we fail if all we do with the emergence of this strange new world is lament. It's also a great opportunity. I resisted the temptation in the, the book to do the cliched Christian thing of quoting that bit where, you know, I've forgotten whether it's Frodo uh, and Gandalf talking and one of them says, you know, oh, would that we had not lived to see such times. And Gandalf says, so do all people who live to see such times. But it's not for us to choose the time in which we live, it's for us to live within those times. Uh, Lament, appropriately lament. Psalms got plenty of laments for you. People in exile lamenting. But then be faithful. Marginal communities are strong communities. The Jews were very marginal in Europe in the Middle Ages. And they became a very strong and successful community. You can look at the story of the English Industrial Revolution. And it's not Protestantism that drives the English Industrial Revolution. It's a certain kind of Protestantism. It's not Anglicanism. It's Quakers. It's nonconformists. It's those who couldn't do anything other than be industrialists who go on to be successful. We should look on the impending marginalization of the church not as something to rejoice in. As I say, it's appropriate to lament. But we should also see it as an opportunity to be a strong community. Because if the modern self, as I've described it, is an, if this is an accurate description, we're going to end up with a generation of people who have no real community. And yet all human beings, from the very beginning, have craved community. It might be a great opportunity for the church to be a strong community for those people who are broken and destroyed by the lack of community in the strange new world. Thank you for listening so patiently. I think I have a few, some moments for questions now. So. All right, so what we're going to ask you to do uh, is you're going to walk to one of these mics in just a moment uh, to ask your question. So if you have your question, go ahead and move to one of the mics here on the sides. Second, it's never cliche to cloak. Uh, Lord of the Rings. That's uh, Fellowship of the Ring, Book Two, Frodo to Gandalf in Moria. Okay. All right. Gotcha. No, gotcha. Number one, uh, while they're lining up for their questions, uh, we live in a world of expressive individualism, whether we like it or not. And you helped us see that this isn't just a, a problem of the left. It's on the right and the left. It's, it's among us. What can yeah. we do as members of our churches to kind of push yeah. against that or combat that? Yeah. First of all, just a definition for anyone unfamiliar with the term. Expressive individualism is this idea that the fundamentally most important thing about us for our identity are our inner feelings. And our ability to act out on those inner feelings in public is what makes us authentic. Uh, 
So that's expressive individualism. And that is the world in which we, we live. You see this uh, uh, among politicians. Uh, I, I imagine if I pick on politicians, nobody is going to be upset. So I'll pick on politicians, a good example. You know, I'm very struck that in the Watergate crisis of the early 70s, one of the things that finishes Richard Nixon is those expletive deleted in the Watergate tapes. When, it's, uh, when the Watergate tapes, the transcripts are released to the American public, the revelation that the President of the United States in private meetings swore, used bad language, was deeply shocking. I'm hard-pressed to think, certainly of young rising politicians, right or left at the moment, and certainly neither the former president nor the present president uh, are exempt from this, who don't routinely use foul language and profanity. Why has that become an okay thing? I would say it's because we've really shifted into expressive individualism. If a politician doesn't use foul, foul language, we think they're playing us. We know these people, we ourselves, we don't necessarily ourselves use the language in private that we would use in public. If a politician doesn't swear, we feel they're putting up a, a screen, they're hiding us from the authentic them. So that's expressive individual and its implications. How do we overcome this as a church? Well, first of all, I think worship. When you think about worship, uh, worship is fascinating to me on a number of levels, and one of them is this. Worship is about the free individual, but it's all about the free individual losing their individuality in a corporate exercise. We all sing the same words. We freely choose to sing the same words. So we are bound together in a corporate activity. We are producing music there. We are going back to the original function of what music did, which was binding the community together, not simply entertaining the individual on the individual's own terms. Secondly, we can think about the words we use when we sing in worship. I'm a big believer that uh, the hymns and the songs we sing uh, are probably as important as the words we hear coming from the pulpit. They shape our imagination as individuals and as a community. They shape the expectations of the Christian life. It's why I think psalm singing is very important. Not an exclusive psalmist, but singing psalms does what? The psalms actually contain notes that are not found in typical hymns, notes of lamentation, notes of near despair, Psalm 88, for example. I think by singing uh, psalms and by singing hymns that allow us to express inner feeling, but do it in a way that ultimately brings those inner feelings under the authority of the reality of God and his revelation. That's important. And I would say Psalm 88 is a great example of this. If you read Psalm 88 on the surface, it seems to be one long lamentation. It seems to be just the inner feelings of the psalmist pouring out. But the psalm begins with the psalmist calling on the covenant name of God. He uses the term Yahweh right at the start. So all of those inner feelings are being placed under the authority of God's revelation of himself and his dealings with his people. So I think you know, one aspect, there are other things one could say, but worship. And making sure that worship is not all about me. It may touch on my feelings, but ultimately it looks outward to God. Amen. Amen. All right. So we're going to start over here with questions. The only thing caveat for questions is ask an immediate question. No explanation in advance because we have so many people. So ask a question so he can answer so that we can get through as many questions as possible. 
Thank you. I noticed in the an endorsement of Rod Dreer on the front flap of your book, I'm wondering if you read Live Not By Lies. I'm wondering if you agree with his idea of soft totalitarianism and uh, in what ways should Christian draw hard lines with specific lies in our culture? Yeah. Um, the answer is yes, I have read it. Yes, I do agree with his uh, notion of soft totalitarianism. Uh, that's what we're seeing emerging at the moment where... You know, I think the you think of the Constitution of the United States, the First Amendment was set up really to protect individuals from having their freedom of speech interfered with by the government. It was always assumed the government would be the threat to freedom. What we're seeing in our connected internet world is that there are other ways of restricting individual freedom over which the government has no control. Uh, you see this uh, with the way people can be cancelled on Twitter, for example. Elon may solve that for us. I don't know. But you know, that would be one example. Uh, we, you saw it. Uh, you could see it. I could imagine a situation where a church, for example, takes a particular stand on a social or moral issue and finds that you know, it gets flagged up on the front page of the Washington Post and suddenly it's not allowed to use the, uh, the online payroll stuff that it had access to. Uh, we tend to think in the church of is, is social media pressure is going to come from Twitter or something like that. I think it could just as easily come from uh, the ways we, we engage in financial exchange. That could be just as dangerous uh, to the church. But these informal ways of corporations being able to impose their views on people. It's not legislated totalitarianism, but it is just or could potentially be just as, if not more, crushing uh, than otherwise, so yes, uh, I think Rod is really onto something, onto something there. He and I are kindred spirits on that front. He's more bleak than I am, um, though a remarkably cheerful guy in real life. But he's generally more bleak than I am on 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 the page. Excellent. All right, Steve. Hi there, Carl. I have a question about when to leave church. I don't leave my Bible family, no matter how much they go astray. And what I'm seeing nowadays in church, some churches are still preaching Christ, scripture, gospel, but some other thing comes in, a view of race, sexuality, uh, inerrancy, something, hell no more. And in my situation, enough. I think I have to move on. It took me three years to yeah. decide that. So any guidelines? It, it's, it's hard. I mean, every situation is, is unique. I would say, clearly, if the gospel's not being preached anymore, then it's not a true church. Mark of the church is true preaching of the word of God. And if the word of God is not being preached, it's not a true church. And to leave that church is no act of schism. Uh, but that's not the only reason one might leave a church. You know, abuse would be another one. Uh, uh, maybe the total eclipse of the gospel by some of the issues you're describing. Then I think one... Uh, however one leaves, I think it should be done, though, respectfully. It should be done. You should tell the elders. Don't just disappear, but tell the elders. It should be done in a respectful manner. And it should be done after discussion. Uh, you know, I don't have much time with people who leave a church because the minister wore the wrong tie or didn't wear a tie or suddenly there's a prayer. You know, I'm not a big praise band fan, but I'm going to leave a church because it has praise band. That, that doesn't rise to the level of, you know, that's a, that's a tertiary issue for me. But the things you're describing, 
They're kind of secondary issues that may well bleed over into primary issues. And it would depend on the details of the situation. But what I would say is that if you do leave, then leave, leave respectfully. I, I've always tried, when I've left places, on the whole, to try to leave in a way that I would not be embarrassed about going back uh, to visit for a weekend. So, uh, you know, this, this current trend for leaving loud strikes me as ridiculous self-righteousness. If you're going to leave, leave. Um, but don't do any damage as you leave. So that would be the only thing I could say without knowing really the details of your particular situation. Brother over here. All right, thanks. Good evening. Um, so I work on a crisis inpatient unit for kids who are like suicidal and homicidal. And over the last couple of years, we see a, like a way exponentially more transgender yep. cases yep. as you know, many people across the state do. My question is, what? because there's an authority figure in the psychiatrist who is pretty much from a practice standpoint is affirming, like you're saying, yeah. it's good practice to be able yeah. to affirm whatever they're dealing yeah. with. Coming from the perspective of the church, it's really hard to be... Yeah. To, to draw somebody without just being winsome and nice. So I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit when it comes to kids especially. Yeah, I mean, I think you're in a uniquely hard situation there. And I would say, you know, what a tragedy that these kids... Nobody is denying the pain that these kids are feeling is real. And nobody should be wanting to argue that they shouldn't be treated with love and care and respect and treat it in a way that helps them with their pain. The tragedy is that the medical profession has been hijacked by political ideology at this point and is not allowed to give appropriate advice. I, mean, I think that there are different kinds of gender dysphoria. Rapid onset gender dysphoria, it interests me that it is disproportionately affecting young, young girls. Surprise, surprise, young girls going through puberty struggle with body image. Who could have seen that coming? That's a shock. Uh, well, in the 80s and 90s, we saw this before. We saw it with bulimia and anorexia. The difference in the 80s and 90s was the medical profession and the governments saw it as an evil and put all their resources into combating it. And they did combat it. Kudos to them. They now... The governments and the medical profession are putting all their resources into promoting this stuff for the most pernicious and evil reasons, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I just don't know. I don't know what you can do in those situations because it seems to me that to be faithful is going to get you fired. And the, the question comes, you know, you, what price your self-respect, I suppose? And I'm conscious when I say that that I have a really cushy job one of the things that stunned me the last couple of years is people keep up to me and say, oh, you take such courageous stands on things. No, I don't. I teach at a college where they, don't, they either approve of what I write or they don't care about what I write. Uh, you know, people bash me on Twitter. Oh, big deal. What are they going to do next? Sneak up behind and give me a wedgie? You know, it's, it's that sort of... Uh, you know, it's kind of... Great, great, I get flack on Twitter, but that's not... The Twitter isn't real. Where you live is real. And the stakes are real for you. You're the guy who's got to be really courageous on this one. And I, I, I would say to you, what price self-respect at this point? Maybe this is a, a task that you personally just can't pursue anymore. Maybe you need to new, move into another branch of medicine. I, I don't know. But, you know, how evil, how evil 
but we live in a world where we wouldn't give these kids tattoos if they were saying, I don't feel whole unless I have a tattoo, and yet we'll sterilize them and screw up their hormones. That's an evil world. Well, the, the one ray of hope you might have is, I think the tables are starting to turn in Europe. I'm very optimistic in the long run that the transgender thing will collapse. And I think the people who backed it will, will go down in history as monsters. They will not be heroes. They will be monsters. Tragically, a lot of people are going to have to suffer. A lot of kids are going to have to suffer to get there. Uh, but it's interesting in Europe that even governments, even the British government, is turning around and saying, look, enough is enough. We've had independent reports done on this, and guess what? Hormone therapy for prepubescent teens is junk science. It's garbage. It's evil garbage, and we're not going to do it anymore. Even in Sweden, they're beginning to have second thoughts about this stuff. So I think there are signs emerging, but that's not going to be in time to help you tomorrow morning. So I, I don't know what to advise, but I'd say never allow anyone to force you to do something against your conscience. You have to be able to sleep at night. Thanks. Over here. <laughs> Hi there. I'm a, a regular listener of a Mortification of Spin. Love it. Thank you so much for that podcast. Um, the church has been more increasingly using the internet, and in some ways in a good way. But I think COVID obviously really caused a lot of problems. So do you mind commenting on the church's use of the internet and some yeah. good that's come of it, and arguably some bad that's come of that intersection? So for instance, like churches that are completely... Yeah. Online. Yeah. Which is not church. Yeah. I, I would agree. I mean, I, I, I'd say what, what uh, Raymond just said. You know, online worship is not worship. Now, let me qualify that a bit. I do think, first of all, in the early days of COVID, when nobody knew, you know, is this the bubonic plague? Nobody knew. Are we going to see half the population wiped out? I, I think going online during that period of time was an appropriate thing to do. You know, we don't want to wipe out humanity for the sake of three, four Sundays, five, six Sundays maybe. Secondly, I think the, the streaming of church services, we've got, a couple, we've got people in church, most churches, we've got a couple at our church, they can't get to church. They're old, they're elderly, they're housebound for very legitimate reasons. Is watching a church service online as good as be, actually being there? No, but it's better than what they had before. So I certainly want to say that there are some good things that come from this. Uh, I, I hated teaching online, but I really enjoyed faculty meetings online. Because <laughs> I was able to, as long as you remember to blank the screen and mute it, man, I could get on with constructive stuff, you know, while, while, while the, the faculty meeting was going on. Um, so I, I think for, for some sort of meetings like that, it's, it's helpful for churches. I do think, though, that those who come to think that online is a substitute for in-person have never really understood what in-person worship is. One pastor commented to me that he was talking, it's as if the people I'm pastoring haven't listened to a word I've said for 20 years with the difficulty of getting people to come back in person. So I think it's good for those who can't get to church. It's not... 50% of something is better than nothing at all. Uh, but I do think that you know, we need human embodiment. 
I very much doubt that anybody in our churches, when they're lying on their deathbed, wants the pastor coming in on a tablet. They want the pastor to be with them and to pray with them. That's not to say if the pastor can't make it back. Maybe the pastor the other side of the world. Maybe seeing him on a tablet is better than nothing. But it's not a substitution of the real thing. It's a different thing. Thank you. Brother over here. So you said the impending marginalization of the church is an opportunity for the church to offer real and true community in the world. And this makes me think of the First Things article by Aaron Wren of, you said, the marginalization, and he's talking about the negative world. My question is, so other than the worship of God in the Sunday worship service, how do we display coming under the sovereignty of Yahweh to a culture full of expressive individuals on their turf? Um, Well, I think we model in our own lives what it means to see our lives as Uh, those that are to be invested in others. I think we need to, you know, hospitality. Hospitality is key to the Old Testament. It's key to uh, Near Eastern culture. Some of my fondest memories, when I was a a student age 19, a friend and I got the bus in London and went to Athens and then hiked across uh, and bussed across Turkey. It's crazy. I mean, think about it. This is in the 80s. We literally vanished for two months. You know, we weren't able to text our parents them know we were. We just vanished off the face of the earth and then reappeared two months later. Uh, my, my parents were insane to let us do that, but it was great fun. And one of the things that I remember most about Turkey was the, the Muslims I met, how generous they were with the hospitality. Very striking. Some of my happiest memories of that holiday were Muslim families having us in for meals, seeing that we were two Western kids wandering around, didn't know where we were, come and have a meal. So I think hospitality... Uh, showing what it means to live a life that connects to others. That's the positive case. The uh, more negative case is, as we've just had with the question about the, the medical thing, I think difficult stands are going to have to be taken by Christians in the workplace. Uh, I had the pleasure of following uh, my friend uh, Professor Robbie George yesterday at a conference in Pin- Princeton. And one of the questions to Robbie George was... Uh, you know, how do we as Christians negotiate what's going on? And his comment was, and I, I can identify with him in this, his comment was, you know, I, he said, I've had a very privileged and blessed life. I've been able to write the things I do and take the stands I've taken without it having any real negative impact upon me, professionally or personally. That is not the world that people live in now. We're of a generation of which that was possible. I think Christians need to realize that witnessing faithful presence is not merely faithfully turning up, which I think is what it slowly degenerated to with the last, last generation. I think faithful presence is going to have to be more confrontational than it was. Not that you pick a fight. You're not, as I said earlier, you know, not every hill is worth dying on. Not every fight has to be picked. But every now and then a fight comes along that, yeah, this one does have to be fought. And that will come with pain and a price. And so I think Christian witness now is no longer, yeah, I think of the Aaron Wren article, yeah, yeah, being nice and being winsome is no longer going to cut it. And, and I think he uses a sort of Tim Keller model. And I, I'm not wanting to knock Tim Keller in saying this, but simply saying that world where you could be sophisticated and thoughtful and still be taken seriously was a world where the big issues the church were facing were not big issues that the world had already taken an antithetical 
position upon and had made non-negotiable for membership of polite society. Very briefly, what is a woman? <laughs> All right, Paul, I can answer I know for you. you. I can answer for you. Paul, I know you and Go Birds, you have the right shirt on, but I'm going to defer to the lady real quick to make sure we have time. So Taylor, you go, and then Paul. This is a woman. Yeah, that's right. There you are. There's one example, in case you were confused. <laughs> Thank you. Um, being uh, just an elementary public school teacher, um, I'm seeing technology running children's yeah. lives, kindergartners, all of them have iPads yeah. now. And I'm just, I'm, my heart is honestly starting to break, and I'm becoming burdened in how these yeah. issues are shaping them for their future. And it's different depending yeah. on what school you're at. Um, as identity issues and technology are starting to really take over the public school system and children in their day-to-day -day lives, because they're yeah. there for seven, eight hours a day, and I'm witnessing this firsthand, because as a specialist teacher, I see all of them throughout mm. six days. Um, how do I, as a teacher, be faithful in this professional setting um, then kind of coupling that with, you know, parents with children in the public school system. How yeah. do I be faithful? Well, first of all, I mean, let me just say that you have a really high calling. Yeah, I, I think that the, we often forget that there are Christians working hard in the public school system, and it's a tough place to be, but it's an important place to be. So first of all, I want to just give you personal kudos, uh, credit for doing what you do. Secondly, it's difficult to give a single one-size-fits-all answer because, as you know, every interaction with every student or every child is going to have its uniqueness. I would say to you, think of what it says in Scripture about, you know, be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within you. And what's being said in the New Testament, it's really talking evangelistically, but say really what's being said is you don't have to ram the gospel down everybody's throat all the time. But you do have to be ready when somebody says... Why do you have this hope? To give them an answer. Mm -hmm. And I would apply that more generally, and I would say, maybe you don't get many opportunities to help these kids. Well, first of all, it's not actually your responsibility. I think if these kids are being overwhelmed by technology, it's not just the schools that are doing that, it's the parents. Parents have to take a lot of responsibility for this. You shouldn't lie awake at night because the parents are failing the kids. That's the parents' uh, responsibility. But secondly, pray that the Lord will give you opportunities to speak to the parents about this. So if a parent comes to you and says, what do you think about giving my child a smartphone? Being able to say to them, that's crazy. You're letting every TikTok idiocrat on the internet get access to your child. Why would you want to do that? So I would say be ready to, to use the opportunities that, that you do get. Be faithful in what you're doing and use the opportunities you do get to speak wisdom into those situations. But don't beat yourself up. On the one hand, I don't want to say have no feelings for these kids, become hardened to them and, and distance from them so you can cover it. I don't want to say that, but I would say you know, ration the amount of agony you go through for them because ultimately, as a teacher, you can only do a limited amount. And if the parents aren't on side, that may be heartbreaking, but the parents have to take responsibility for that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay. All right, we're going to take the last two questions, and I'll close this out. Paul, and then a brother over here. We'll try to move through time. Great. Uh, you had mentioned that, uh, and I agree with you, that church discipline is dead, and um, one of the marks <clears throat> of the true church is yep. discipline. And so I'm wondering if you have any recommendations or... Uh, suggestions on what we can or should, or should we just give up and say it's dead? Yeah. Uh, I, we should certainly continue to do it. Because church discipline is not simply about reclaiming the offender. It's also about vindicating the name of Christ in public. Mm 
and uh, indicating to congregants that we take what we believe seriously. So just because it's busted on the first function. I had an interesting years ago, I, 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 the Archbishop of Philadelphia, former Archbishop, Archbishop Chaput, is a, is a personal friend. And the first time we met, I remember him saying to me, if ever you've got a question, shoot me an email. And Joe Biden, this was before he became president, Joe Biden officiated a gay wedding. So I emailed the archbishop and said to him, so you guys going to excommunicate him? And he responded uh, and said, well, you know, we've, we've been a bit wary about excommunicating people since the Reformation because it doesn't seem to have much of an effect. <laughs> so I... Here's me in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Total number in the entire universe, uh, and I include the moon in this, uh, 30,000 members. I don't know how many Catholics there are in Greater Philadelphia, but he's got a lot of Catholics under his... I email him back and I say, yeah, but in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, we discipline for three reasons. Reclaiming the offender, vindicating the name of Christ, and indicating to people that we take, take stuff seriously. And I, the phone went, and it was the archdiocese. And I, oh, dear, I'm in real trouble now. I think I'm real. But actually, it became a funny story in that he said, can you write... It was his assistant, who's a very good friend of mine, and said, uh, can you write something calling the Catholic bishops out on their failure to deal with Joe Biden for first things? Uh, we'll send you the references in canon law if you'll write it. So I wrote this thing up. There you, go. Uh, you can find it online. I call it Hey Joe, little tribute to Jimi Hendrix, whose music I like. Uh, and I, I put it out. I said, sure, I'll be a hitman for, for the papacy if you want me to. So I did this thing. And um, that Friday, I get an email from Fran, the archbishop's assistant, as I say, who's been a friend and mentor to me now for many years. And he sent me a link, and it was to the archbishop's pastoral, weekly pastoral newsletter. And it was an article about Joe Biden, and he referenced my article in terms such as, even the Protestants are calling us out on this now. We've got to do something. <laughs> so, uh, but interestingly enough, and I don't take credit for this, but Archbishop Chaput called Joe Biden out again last week. said he's out of communion with the Catholic Church because of his promotion, basically, of infanticide. Uh, and I'm thinking, well, what's the Archbishop doing there? He's not sending a message to Catholics that, you know, the, the Pope's not going to kick Joe Biden out. The Pope's going to undermine the Archbishop on this one, if he does anything at all. But what the Archbishop is doing is he's sending a signal that he takes his beliefs seriously, some of which I disagree with. I'm not a Roman Catholic. But that's why I think we should do church discipline. If somebody in your church is beating their wife and you do nothing about it, you send a message that we tolerate wife beaters in this church. Last discipline case I did at uh, the church where I was pastor, which kind of pretty much finished me off. I was, I was, I'd had enough at the end of it. Dealt with somebody in exactly that, that situation. And I'm glad we did it, even though that person went off and joined another church. I'm glad we did it, because I wanted to be able to say to women in my congregation, if you come to me and you tell me your husband's beating you, I'll show you what we do to wife beaters in this congregation. We tell them they, they either repent or they get out. There is no place for them here. That's why I think we still do discipline. So when I said discipline is dead, I meant it's dead in terms of reclaiming the offender. I don't think it's dead in terms of vindicating the name of Christ and sending a message to congruence that, you know, if wicked people hurt you, you can come to the session and, and we'll take you seriously and we will deal with this person. 
Great. Last question here, brother. It's actually a very similar uh, question as well. Um, kind of going back to church discipline or just even spiritual accountability in general, um, like I agree with you, I, all the reasons why we do it, um, I don't believe it's dead. I believe it's in a coma, and it's a bleak mm. coma at this time. But in our current cultural moment, moment uh, beyond a diagnosis, well, do you have any practical prescriptions of how to handle it in our local churches? How to handle church discipline? Yes. It's, it's difficult because sometimes... I mean, I mean, in the cases I dealt with myself, there are issues there that mean you can't go fully public with all that's gone on because you want to protect the victims. Uh, and they, they have a right to have their private life kept private or, or only exposed to those who need to know about it in order to act upon it. Uh, and that, for that reason, you know, you know, nobody ever thanks you for church discipline <laughs> because the culprit can go around giving his side of the story. Whereas you as pastor and as elders are bound to keep it discreet. So I think it's an act of will to do it. I think you need to do it properly and appropriately. The great thing, maybe not great, one of the good things about being a Presbyterian is this. We have rule books that are provided for us that allow us to say to people, we're following the procedures. We have the rule book. We didn't choose the rule book. We have the rule book, and we're going to follow this, and everyone has a right to a fair trial. I think if you're an independent church, you're in a tougher situation. What you need, if, if you're an independent church, you need to set out some rules and procedures for dealing with this stuff. There are models out there. So first of all, have a rule book. And then secondly, establish very careful uh, a culture of how to proceed. Not everybody who comes to you and tells you some wild story about somebody else in the congregation is necessarily telling the truth. So you need to be very careful and very discreet about how you handle that. And then I think you need to make, you know, I, I think of one incident in a church where uh, a couple came and, and what, was, what was told to the session was that one member of this couple had uh, committed uh, adultery. Uh, and the question was, what do we do about that? Well, the person was repentant. And we didn't feel there was any need to do anything public about it because it would have humiliated the spouse. So we, we dealt with it. We made sure there was a record in the minutes to show that we took it seriously. But we didn't feel any need to, to beat the person up. They were clearly repentant. So I think you know, one, discipline is not about destroying somebody. It's about trying to get them to repent of some bad stuff they've done. And if they do that, then you can handle it very discreetly and very, very carefully. The difficult cases are the ones where they just refuse to do that. And those are horrible because ultimately you have to, you know, humanly speaking, you've got to do some brutal things. And then you won't be thanked by some people in your congregation because they'll be puzzled, perplexed, disturbed, that what they're seeing is an abuse of power, etc., etc. And unfortunately, your hands are often tied in terms of how much you can say. You have to say, look, you, you just have to trust us on this one. And, and that's a hard sell to some people, particularly in a, in a world where pastoral abuse of congregants is a hot-button issue at this particular point in time. Thank you. Carl, thank you. Just uh, one final question. How do you feel about your initials being CRT? Well, as I said earlier, I'm <laughs> deeply offended that my initials have been culturally appropriated. <laughs> by critical race theorists. Uh, I feel oppressed and marginalized by that. Uh, but I have thoroughly enjoyed the headlines such as uh, 